Welcome to the Ridge Life Podcast. We at Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship trust this message will be an encouragement to you. Please join with us as we look into God's Word with Pastor Mike Bird. We're going to be in the uh, book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter number 3. And I must admit, this is probably one of the most unusual Mother's Day sermons that you've ever heard. And you know, this is always a real struggle for me, primarily because what do you say about Mother's Day that already hasn't been said? And it's a challenge for me, especially Mother's Day, Father's Day. And I'm always challenged to find the right things to say. But uh, this message today is is not going to be your average Mother's Day sermon. And when we read the text here this morning, I think you'll be able to figure out why. Um... And you're probably going to be thinking, what on earth does this have to do with Mother's or Mother's Day? And, you know, thinking about Mother's Day, I, I recognize that a day like this can be very painful for, for others. Uh, you know, there's a lot of women out there that, uh, you know, a day like this is, is a hard day. Um, and the rest of us are totally oblivious to that. Um, not everybody can celebrate Mother's Day. And, uh, you know, think of the, the women who's had an abortion or um, the one that uh, maybe has had it a miscarriage. What does, what does Mother's Day mean to them? Um, what about uh, someone whose mother was abusive or abandoned them or greatly immoral? Uh, what, what does Mother's Day look like for them? A Mother's Day can be a very painful, painful day for others, and not just Mother's Day, but Father's Day or any type of holiday, um, one that uh, may, they may not have any type of family. So I, I want to make sure that we understand that even though today's Mother's Day, uh, we're going to be looking at a, a, a portion of, of Scripture here that I, I hope that uh, we can take a different look at it, and from that, um, even if today is not a day of celebration for you, normally, um, that you would find great hope in the scriptures, you'd find great hope in Jesus Christ, and uh, you still can celebrate today, even though uh, today the fact of Mother's Day might be a, a very painful uh, day for you. So we're going to look at this scripture here, and we're going to look at this in three parts, and uh, I'm going to comment on some of these parts of the scripture, just kind of set it in its context so we can understand exactly what's going on. And then I'm going to wrap all of this up uh, towards the end, uh, talking about mothers, talking about uh, Mother's Day. And I'll believe that uh, all of this will, will come together in the end. So this is what I want you to take away with you today. Jesus gives his followers hope for the present and the future. Jesus gives his followers hope for the present and the future. So let's take note here about this text in Mark chapter number three. We're going to begin reading here in verse number seven. It says here, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, 
and from all around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus here has been teaching, and it was noted in uh, previous uh, chapters in Mark, that his teaching uh, was a teaching that the Pharisees and the scribes did not like, um, but the people did here in chapter 3 is what we read. Um, we find Jesus and, and what he is doing, and his teaching was that of authority, um, as not as the scribes and the Pharisees, as you read in earlier chapters of Mark. And so the Pharisees did not like what Jesus was doing, what he was teaching. And it's noted here, look what it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Uh, it wasn't just that Jesus went away, that he left. Uh, I believe this was a planned withdrawing from the situation that was at hand. You say, what was the situation? Well, we see in the previous verse, in uh, verse number 6, that the scribes and the Herodians took counsel on how they might destroy Jesus. And so they did not like what Jesus was doing. They did not like his teaching. And so they're planning on destroying him. And so what does Jesus do? He withdraws with his disciples. And notice how he gets out of the situation. It's in a crowd. And... Uh, it seems odd that Jesus would protect himself by going to the sea with this great crowd that is following him. But uh, this, is the way, this is the best way that Jesus often protected himself, was in a crowd. In the last week of Jesus' life, the scribes and the Pharisees were bound and determined to kill Jesus. But it did not happen, primarily because it was not his time yet. But he was also in the temple, and they didn't dare try and go after Jesus. Because you have to think about this. Here's Jesus. He's crowded around with a lot of people. And what was Jesus doing? He was healing people. He was casting out demons. People's lives were being radically transformed. He was teaching. The people loved it. They were going towards Jesus, trying to get something from Jesus. And here's Jesus, he's in a crowd, and they're, they're not going to dare go in after him. Because what do you think the people would do? Well, they'd get really upset. And so Jesus knew by going into a crowd, oftentimes it protected him uh, from that. And so it wouldn't be beneficial to the scribes and the Herodians to go into that crowd and try to take Jesus away to go and execute him. So he withdraws to the sea, and we see this multitude that is gathered, and notice how Mark describes how big this crowd it really is. Look what he says. He says, there was a great crowd that followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. If you were to look at a map of uh, Jerusalem, and you were to see this, uh, you would see people coming from Idumea, which is 
to the, uh, to the south. You got people coming from Tyre and Sidon, which is uh, to the north. Uh, you have here the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So this was a widespread crowd that had gathered about to get something from Jesus, following Jesus. Uh, in reality, this scene, I, I would look at it as being very chaotic. It was a very chaotic scene. I don't think any of us can really comprehend how chaotic this scene must have really been. Uh, my wife and I, when we were living in Ohio, uh, there in Columbus, every 4th of July, they would have this thing called red, white, and boom. And uh, you would drive to downtown Columbus, and they had certain streets blocked off. And so you'd try to get as close as you could, so you'd have to get there really early. And you would have to walk into downtown Columbus, where the river was, uh, the Ohio River, and they lit off fireworks from there. And it was estimated that uh, just about every year, there was probably about at least 300,000 people that would gather in downtown Columbus. You could not drive there uh, in the downtown. You had to walk. And after, after the red, white, and boom was over, it was a mad dash to get out of downtown, into your car, and onto the expressway so you could get out. And the crowds of people, it was chaotic. Um, and you look at this scene of Jesus, I don't think it was like 10 people. I mean, you got people coming from all over, and they're pressing in towards Jesus, trying to get something from him in a very chaotic uh, situation. So they're crowding in, they're pressing in towards him. Their goal is really just to touch him. Um, you got this mob of people pressing in on Jesus here. And it's apparent that people learned that you didn't have to really ask Jesus for a healing because we read in the, the Gospel of Mark, people, uh, the woman who had the issue of blood, the hemorrhage of blood for many, many years, she said, if I could just get close enough and just touch the hem of his garment, I could be made whole. And uh, so people knew this, and it says that they were crushing him. They, they were in there because he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him just to touch him. And they were crushing him. They were moving in so closely just to get close to Jesus. And so we have this happening. And I love this, what Mark writes here. He says, uh, verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. What chaos. When you process this scene here, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. People moving in, crushing towards Jesus, and then unclean spirits just literally falling down. You are the Son of God! You are the Son of God! And notice what Jesus tells them. He says, orders them not to make him known. So with all this chaos, we see there's a getaway boat. Look at verse number 9. Tells us here, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And so what we can see here that the disciples provided a boat for Jesus to get away from these crowds. 
As they're moving, you got to picture the scene. He's over there by the by the sea, and and as he's moving, the crowd is keeps keeps following. And if this was the sea here, okay, guys, all right, okay, all right, okay, yes, 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 and they're they're moving and moving, and okay, now he's getting into the water. Okay, guys, all right, now we're knee deep. He gets into the boat, and then he moves out. You can imagine the people keep coming, keep coming. And Jesus goes out there into the sea. He's preaching the gospel uh, to them. And all of this is so that he can escape from all of the chaos of this crowd. Let's look at the next part of this portion of scripture here. Verse 13, and he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. And then we see all of the apostles named here uh, in the rest of this, uh, this portion of scripture. And so you see Jesus going up to this mountain. He's departed in the boat and he's gotten away from the crowd. And now he's in the mountain there and he's called uh, these followers. They're there with him. And out of these followers, uh, he calls his apostles. And uh, you've got to think about this. Jesus had just left this very chaotic scene. And he goes and he's trying to spend some time alone now with his father. Uh, we see in Luke 6 this parallel to the story in the verse 12 through 13. This is exactly what Jesus did. It says, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So our Lord calls his disciples to himself, and then out of the disciples he chooses twelve and names them as apostles. And I want you to notice some observations of these twelve apostles. First of all, they're all men. I know that's not very popular today in a, a feminist uh, culture that we live in, but they were all men. Jesus chose men to do uh, his work for this. Secondly, they were a very diverse group of men. They were not all alike. And this is, is this not really where real unity takes place, is when you have diversity, and yet all people who are so diverse are able to come together for one common purpose? And that's exactly what uh, Jesus has here. He has a group of diverse men that he calls together. Some of them are fishermen. Um, one of them's a tax collector. I, I wouldn't necessarily put that guy in the, in the mix. You have this guy, Simon the Zealot, uh, who is really a, a right-wing political activist. Um, so you've got this huge mix of, of people coming together uh, and they're so diverse. Uh, they were all Galileans, in spite of the diversity. Um, this is something that they, that they had in common. Uh, we read, uh, remember in Acts, when Jesus goes up to uh, ascends, he says, the, the angel says, ye men of Galilee, why are you standing here idle? So they're all Galileans. And uh, another thing we find is they were not a very impressive group of people. Uh, these men were probably looked at as those who were most likely not to succeed in life. Uh, we read about them as the Jewish leaders 
uh, said that they were perceived as being unlearned and ignorant men. But Jesus chose those men, and those are the ones that he chose to preach the gospel uh, into the area there. Now notice why Jesus calls them. One, to send them out. Uh, we find here it says, and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Uh, this is what the word apostle means. It means to be sent out, one who is sent out. And so Jesus sends these apostles out to the various uh, areas that you read in the, the next chapters to follow. They're preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing, they're casting out demons. And they're being sent out to extend Jesus' ministry. And uh, these are the men, except for Judas Iscariot, who will go and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus after uh, Pentecost. Secondly, now this is the important phrase here, that they might be with him. Look at verse number 14. Look what he says here. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Now this is where this passage really gets interesting. When we think of that, what does that really mean? That they might be with him. Were they only with Jesus only to learn what he wanted them to learn? Were they only with Jesus so they could go about their ministry and have Jesus evaluate it for them? Was this only a kind of an apprenticeship type thing? Like, you're going to come with me and I'm going to teach you the ropes. I'm going to teach you what you need to do. I don't think any of that uh, is necessarily totally true. I, I believe, yes, Jesus did teach them. But when, I, when it says that they might be with him, I believe it was talking about that Jesus wanted to spend the time with these men because he desires and loves them, and he loves the fellowship with them. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, we read that Jesus told his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And so I believe Jesus delighted in the fellowship of this intimate friendship with these disciples. He wanted to spend the time with them. There was an intimate desire to be with them. And uh, I believe this is very important because uh, this is going to come back into play here as we wrap this up here in uh, Mark 3. So don't forget this uh, point here. Now we come here to verses 20 and 21. Uh, and when I see this, this is, this, this is so bizarre. Jesus, large crowds following him. <laughs> he goes out, uh, calls his disciples. Look at uh, verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, this is Jesus' family, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is a family intervention that Jesus' family is trying to uh, do. 
Now, this is, this is so amazing because this account about Jesus' family intervention is not found in any other gospel account but here in Mark. Now, the way Mark writes this, you're going to see Mark introduces you to the story. Then there's an interruption to the story. And then he picks the story back up again. And that's what we're going to see here. So we see here his family, it says that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And so here in verses 20 and 21 gives us this intent of Jesus' family to intervene. And it's expressed as something that is going to happen. They are going to intervene. We're, they're saying, we're going to go and get him because he's lost his mind. He's flipped his wig. This guy's crazy. We need to go and speak to Jesus and get him away from all those people. He's, he's really crazy. We need to help him. Maybe we need to seek some uh, professional help for him. Call Dr. Phil. We need to help him. Okay. And so we have this interruption. And you'll see here in this next passage here of what the scribes are going to say of what Jesus is doing as, as they are saying that he is delivering demons with demon power. And Jesus deals with all that. And he'll come back to conclude here in chapter 3 with the question, who is my mother and brothers? So Jesus' family hears what's going on. And here is Jesus, as we're going to read here in the next passage. He's in a house and he's surrounded by people. And even with his family arriving, they can't even get into the house because there's so many people. Jesus is locked inside. There's no way for them to go in and get him because there's so many people. They can't, they're trying to coerce Jesus out of the house. And they hear that Jesus hasn't had anything to eat. And uh, they want to get him out. And I think about this chaos that, that what's going on and, and the text says they, they could not even eat. In other words, they, they haven't been able to get a Big Mac or, uh, you know, get a, a fish sandwich uh, with uh, ketchup only, you know. Or, uh, this, is, this is so typical, right, of, of a mother. Um, you haven't had anything to eat today, right? Here's your nutrition, I'm sure if, uh, if this was happening today, she'd probably trying to get Jesus some uh, vitamin pills. You know, I take vitamin pills. My wife has this like big pile of them. Like, she said, did you take your vitamins today? Yeah. So you haven't had your nutrition. You haven't had anything to eat. They're pressing in. And this is a real situation of what's going on. Jesus is locked in the house because of the crowds. He can't get out to eat. But he really doesn't seem to be bothered by all of this. Because the family thinks this is a really, really bad situation. Um, and they, they think that he has lost his mind. And it requires a family intervention. 
You know, what's interesting about this story is that what the family thinks about Jesus and then this story about his family is right alongside with this other story about the scribes and the Pharisees and what they think about Jesus. They think that he's, he's demon-possessed. Um, so you have on one side his family saying, you're mentally ill. And then on this other side, you have the scribes saying, you're demon-possessed. So both the family and the enemies are in both opposition to what Jesus is trying to do. And so Jesus here is, uh, is in this house, and this brings us to this next part of the story. Look at verse 22 through 30. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom cannot stand, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now notice the focus is on Jesus' ability to cast out demons. So he's in this house, the scribes and the Pharisees are there, and they're saying, you're demon-possessed. He's not talking about his ability to heal but his ability to cast out demons. It was said of Jesus when he was casting out demons, the people were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So in this passage, we see this same scenario playing out. Jesus has been casting out demons and now the scribes and the Pharisees are saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, and it's by the prince of demons that he cast out the demons. So here's what is happening. Jesus' authority and ability to cast out demons is evident because everywhere Jesus went, the demons cried out and they said, you are the son of God. And when Jesus orders them to be silent, they obey. And when he commands them to come out, they obey. So these scribes are saying, the reason why they obey you is because you are a demon and you are the prince of demons and you're able to do this. They say Jesus is getting his power through the dark side. Notice the Lord's response to all of this. Jesus begins to speak to them in parables, verse 23. And he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? He says, what's the use? <laughs> if what I'm doing is by demon power, aren't I really defeating my own work? I mean, it's kind of stupid for me to do that, to cast out demons by demon power. I'm, go I'm working against myself. What's the advantage? It just doesn't make sense to say that Jesus is doing this through the power of Satan. 
Jesus then sets that argument aside and leads us to this unpardonable sin. I told you this is going to be a weird Mother's Day message, right? Going, wow, pardonable sins, demons, what is all this, okay? Here's Jesus talking about the unpardonable sin, okay? Now, in this text, he's attributing to Jesus the power of Satan. They are saying that Jesus operates in the power of Satan rather than in the power of the spirits. All of the miraculous workings that Jesus did was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you say that Jesus is doing what he does through the power of Satan, you are now blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Jesus is very clear here. Notice verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus says, you can blaspheme me, you can blaspheme the Father, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it can never be forgiven. The reason for this is because the Holy Spirit is the one who is the instrument by which God's message is made clear to men. It is said of the Holy Spirit that he convicts men of their sin. He convicts men of Christ's righteousness and the judgment that is to come. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings people to life. He takes dead men spiritually and gives them life as they respond and they come to Christ. And so when the preaching of the gospel is going forward, the Holy Spirit is at work and he's drawing people to himself. And if you say that's a work of Satan, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit, in a sense, is like a rope that is being lowered into a pit to somebody and that person burns the rope there's no hope for you at all. Your chances have just gone away. So this unpardonable sin is the sin of the unbeliever. Not the believer, the unbeliever. Which makes him or her unsavable. It is not the sin of a believer that causes them to lose their salvation. Jesus is very specific about this sin and its consequences. He says it's an eternal sin, can never be forgiven. And so Christians who think that they've committed the unpardonable sin are not really understanding what Jesus is saying here in this teaching. In fact, I want to encourage you, if you are worried about your sin, if your sin is ever before you and you are worried about your sin... That's a great, great evidence of life. <laughs> that you know that you are sinning against God. You're agonizing over your sin in your life. And so that's good for you as that shows that you have life. So now we come here to this last part of this passage. So all of this is coming to, to an end here. Okay? Jesus' family, he's inside the house. Jesus inside the house. Scribes are telling him, you have Satan. You're, you're, you, you are, you're doing all this stuff by Satan's power. Jesus' family is outside of the house. They can't go in. And they say, he's mentally ill. We find here verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looking about to those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So here is Jesus' family, and they're going to try to go in inside and rescue Jesus. They're going to call him out and take charge of him. They say, boy, we've, we've called the men over here, and they have a, a coat for him, and we're going to take him away. We got it all planned out. He's mentally ill. And so Mark is picking back up on this, this story here, what's, what he stated previous before that. And apparently they can't even get into the house because there's a crowd. There's a crowd of people outside of the house, inside of the house, people looking through the windows, people breaking up the, the roof, trying to look down inside. They can't get in. And so what do they do? They evidently, they send word in to him. Is Jesus in there? Yes. Can you tell him that his mother and his brothers are out here? We need to talk to him. This is where this message comes to Jesus in verse 32. It makes you wonder if they were not trying to lure him outside. Would you try and go in and try to get Jesus out of that crowd? Trying to lure him out? Haven't had anything to eat? You're hungry. Look what I got. So I believe they were trying to lure him out, trying to get him by himself, trying to intervene on his behalf. Aren't families great? I tell you, you know, all of us, all of us, myself included, have some pretty strange families. And they do things and they say things that are just bizarre. Jesus' family is no exception to that. They're trying to get Jesus out of this house. And after hearing their summons, this is where Jesus really identifies who his family really is. Look again, verses 33 through 35. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, bringing all of this together, do you remember the previous thing about Jesus saying his disciples, he wanted to be with them? He calls them to himself. He wants to be with them, wants to spend the time with them, have that intimate desire and relationship with them. In effect, when Jesus called them to be with him, Jesus was creating a new family. Remember, Jesus' brothers were even unbelievers and possibly even his sisters were as well. John chapter 7 tells us that his brothers were unbelievers. They did not believe what Jesus was doing. They were unbelievers. 
They were hostile to what Jesus was doing. And here in this situation, they think that Jesus is out of his mind. So I believe Jesus is creating a new family, those who are intimately associated with him. So how do we take this and apply it for Mother's Day, Father's Day, any type of special holiday? So if you've been waiting for the outline, here it is. I've just got two things real quick. Number one, following Jesus is not always family friendly. We need to recognize that as people who are very family oriented, okay, we, we care about family. We do things together as family. We spend time with our family. We have our family traditions. We have all family, 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 family. Okay? Christianity is not always family friendly. What do I mean by that? Well, if your idea of Christianity is being warm and fuzzy feelings, your life is going to be great, getting wonderful, then I believe you bought into a false teaching about the gospel. Listen to this text in Matthew chapter uh, number 10, verses 16 through 22. Jesus says about what the gospel is and what the family really is. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not for you, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Here it is. Look how great family really is. And look what the gospel does to families. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Christianity is not family friendly. And the day that you decided to follow Jesus Christ, the day that you decided to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life and believe the gospel... Jesus says that your family will not always be friendly towards you. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, expect to be hated of all men. That's what the gospel teaches. Look what he says in verse 34 through 38. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's the gospel, folks. And so if we have this idea of thinking that family, 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 when you decide to follow Jesus, it's not really family friendly. Pretty strong words, aren't they? 
What this is saying is that following Christ is a priority, and in some families, there will be a high price to pay for keeping and observing that priority. Following Jesus is not always family-friendly. Here's the second thing. You are part of the family of God. See, there's a trade-off here. Because you forsake your family, you gain a new family. When you follow Jesus, there's this, there's, this, there's this trade that you get. So if you lose your earthly family because you follow Jesus, you gain another family. Turn over to Mark chapter number 10. Your should be there, Mark 3. Just flip over a few chapters. Mark 10. Listen to what Jesus says. Mark these words because this is pretty important. Mark 10, verse 29 and 30. Jesus writes here, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, and mark this, now in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. See the trade-off? So if you lose your earthly family because you follow Jesus, you gain this other family. The trade-off is those who choose to follow Christ become an intimate part of the family of God. You now have an intimate fellowship with Christ that surpasses any human relationship here on earth. So in this sense, the church is the family of God. So if you are a believer, you are part of the family. This is your family. And for those that have lost Mother, father, brother, sister, child. You have a family here. And he says, for the future as well. So for those of you who find Mother's Day or Father's Day or holidays to be difficult and painful days because of painful memories or broken families, we are your family. This is your family. And it's, better, it's a better family that you could ever have here on earth. And so if this is usually a sad day for you because this day should be a day of rejoicing and happiness and you know, all this kind of stuff, if you are a believer, God has made you part of a great family. And that intimacy, that desire that, that he desires to be with you, that intimate desire, he wants to be with you with you. That's something that you can greatly rejoice in, knowing that you have that family. Perhaps there might be some here who are unbelievers. And I would say to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel that says that you are a sinner and that you'll be judged for your sin. And if you die in your sins, you'll be separated forever in the lake of fire. You'll be judged but the gospel offers Jesus as the only substitute for your sins because he took your punishment. The punishment was laid upon Jesus. 
and he died in your place and rose again from the grave. And so Jesus offers eternal life, salvation for those who repent of their sins and turn to Christ. So God gives you this escape from punishment of hell, but it's also an offer of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And he gives that to you. And so if you've never repented of your sins and believed the gospel, I would hope that you would turn to Christ. If Christ is drawing you unto himself, that you would trust him. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.